Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I have a very special guest uh, for the Open Floor uh, Globe uh, this week. It's Jack McCallum, the legendary NBA writer. Obviously, he's written numerous books that you've probably read, the Dream Team book, the Jerry West book that came out recently, and he's got a new project. It's a podcast project called the Dream Team Tapes. Jack, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I know that's kind of a loaded question these days, but are you holding up okay? I'm holding up okay, Ben. You'll find out as you go on, you have the older you get, the more chance you have of being called legendary. So that <laughs> is one thing about being uh, being old. Yeah, I, I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, social distancing. I mean, the Jordan thing came along and gave me something to write about. Way too many words, I might add. But And then the dream team, and then the podcast came along. So... Uh, you know, I'm kind of semi-retired, but I've been, a- but it hasn't felt like it uh, the last few weeks, and for that, I'm thankful. Yeah, if that's retirement, I don't know what uh, I've got in store for me down the road, Jack. I mean, you're right almost as much as I am. I think we we both probably put together tens of thousands of words on the last dance, and that's really where I wanted to start because I understand there's kind of been a story floating out. You got snubbed in favor of Justin Timberlake. Uh, you were all maybe scheduled to be interviewed uh, for the documentary. Had they given you your shot, you know, had they given you the uh, the sit-down treatment, you're in your living room, you know, waxing nostalgic about Michael Jordan, what is your go-to story? What's the vignette or the uh, the piece of analysis that you would have brought to the table for uh, Jason Hare and the rest of his staff? I think I probably would have. I, I don't think it's, it, it, it is as simple as one time I was bumped for JT, but I have, I went back and looked because Mike Tolan, the, uh, the great producer of the thing, one of the three producers, you know, he, he's a friend of mine, and uh, I've known Mike for a long, long time. And I wrote that paragraph in the first Jordan blog just to say I wasn't interviewed, and I told him the only reason I did it was that this was a big thing. Like 100 people were asking me, when are you going to be on? What episode are you in? And I just felt kind of obligated to tell people that I wasn't. And one of the times that I was scrapped, it probably would have been, you know, if not probably, it was for Justin Timberlake because he had, you know, parachuted into New York that day. And I was in New York scheduled to be interviewed. So they had to do uh, JT, they told me. And I, you know, at first I, my joke was I thought it was James Taylor, uh, although that wasn't a joke, actually. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of places I could have gone about Jordan. And I think where I would have gone was two places, if you don't mind, very briefly. One of them was in the uh, at the Barcelona Olympics, and uh, they were they were playing 
um, Lithuania, which was the one team that Chuck Daly feared. It wasn't Croatia, it was Lithuania. Because they had uh, they had Marshall Onis and they had Sabonis, who were, you know, at one time, I mean, Sabonis, you know, people were saying he was the best player in the world. Now, that was had been a decade earlier. Anyway, during the game, uh, or before the game, Jordan had played 36 holes that day and was showing up on the bus, like, you know, literally took off his golf shoes and came on the bus to go to the game. And Chuck <laughs> Daly told him, look, man, I want to get some people in the game. This game scares me. I want you to keep Marshall Lonis from setting the offense, from from getting it and getting them in any kind of rhythm. I want to take care of these sons of bitches early. You know? So Chuck Daly used to talk about this every time I saw him. He would say for six minutes, Jordan wouldn't let Marshallonis get the ball. <laughs> yeah. he, wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't let him near the ball. And Chuck used to say that. Oh, I used to get Chuck to talk about it all the time. Chuck, tell me about the game with, uh, you know, Michael and Marshallonis. And uh, Chuck would go, oh, my God. You know, I told him that. So that's number one, just what he was as a player. That spoke to both his energy uh his primacy in the game at that time and his abilities as a defender. The other one would be a few years earlier when it's a long story, but very shortly I discovered Jordan had had a child. Um, and it surprised me. I, I was at his place. This is 87 or 88, maybe 89, probably 88. And, you know, Michael shows me Juanita, then soon to be his wife came down and was holding a baby. And it surprised me. And, uh, you know, later that night, I was told Michael doesn't want you to write that he had a baby. And I took exception to that for various reasons. The story's too long. But I wrote it, and Michael was mad. But um, he, we got, he got over it. And life went on. And it sort of spoke to the way it was, why I was lucky covering those guys in that era, the sort of understanding there was between the press and the players. You could have your arguments, you could have your disagreements, but there was a little bit more of a, for want of a better word, united feeling about what you had to do. Now, later on, Michael obviously came apart in his relationship with uh, Sports Illustrated, but that would have been two of the things that I know I would have talked about. Well, I love this image as of Michael Jordan as hardline diplomat, just laying it down for Sharunas Marshallonis and uh, and Tony Kukoc at various points during those Olympics, kind of like letting them know what's uh, what's going on. It's it's beautiful. You know, you mentioned the Dream Team, and of course, this podcast you've done, Dream Team tapes. You're narrating it, but you also have the voices of guys like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, uh, David Robinson, uh, and and the list goes on of, of the interviews that you conducted uh, for your book. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, it's very obvious early in the series, and I believe the first couple of episodes are already live uh, by the time the, that our listeners will will hear this. It's very obvious you've got that rapport you're describing with Jordan and, and with Larry and Magic. I mean, they're just freewheeling and how they communicate with you. But I'm curious of, of that group of guys, you know, the biggest stars in the world at that point. Was there a tougher nut to crack? Who was the guy that you just, you know, couldn't really figure out, couldn't penetrate, couldn't get uh, maybe what you wanted out of him? And what do you think the hangup was, you know, when you are able to have success with kind of the big three of that team and Barkley, who is obviously, you know, willing to tell a story uh, at the drop of a hat? Right. Yeah. It's funny when you go out and do, I did, I did a cover story on Barkley and it was a new managing editor. This is about, I'll answer your question in a second, but the new managing editor of SI came in and the first story happened to be me doing Charles. This is in 2003, I think when he was blowing up as the TNT, the TNT show was blowing up and Charles was the cultural touchstone remains. So, I mean, that show remains, you know, it still has juice, you know, it's incredible anyway. So I write this cover story following Barkley around and the new managing editor, I go in to see him and he's, he's just praising me. And my God, I was so glad to, and, and all this. And I said to him, Terry, I gotta be honest. If you can't write a good story about Barkley, you know, you used to get all these credit this credit for writing these kind of profiles on guys like i mean you could have just gone and watched michael play and done a, a really good story if you knew basketball 
you were able to bounce some historical perspective off of it. So to answer your question, once again, I was really lucky with these guys. But to answer your question, Leitner notwithstanding, who I just couldn't, maybe it was partly me, I just didn't really care or couldn't penetrate. I had a bad first meeting with him. Um, I would say the guy that I gave short shrift to because I couldn't get anywhere was Patrick Ewing. Uh, and I had no, it was funny. I knew Patrick way back. I had done a story back on, on him in 1981 when he was gone into Georgetown. Uh, the summer before they had played in this thing called the Olympic Sports Festival. And uh, is that what it was called? Anyway, it was in Syracuse and Patrick and Michael Jordan, a kid named Michael Jordan, were in fact, were going to be two of the ones everybody wanted to look like, look at. So I had known Patrick a long time, even his years with the Knicks. And every time I used to go see him as a New York Nick, he would never turn me down. Yeah, I'll give you the time. But he would always do it when he was getting a rub down. <laughs> now, you're in this business. One thing you know <laughs> about interviewing, you got to have somebody, uh, their attention on you. You know, the whole key to doing the Dream Team book was getting the guys focused and away from distractions and listening to only you. And Patrick, yeah. actually, my interview for the book was pretty good. But aside from that, I never felt like uh, I ever got to the real Patrick or he ever gave me much. And a couple people commented on, on the Dream Team book. Oh, it was just about, you know, Jordan, you didn't have hardly almost anything about Patrick Ewing. And uh, I would probably plead guilty to that and say that it wasn't entirely my fault. Yeah, that's interesting because um, we've had a discussion on this podcast about the role that myth-making or guys telling their own stories can play and how they're remembered. I mean, obviously, we're seeing it with Jordan play out on the biggest possible stage with The Last Dance where – you know, he's got his fingers all over selecting the director and his production companies involved and everything else. And guys like Kobe and LeBron have clearly internalized that message. But when you go back to that that generation, um, you know, that, that those 90s guys, there were a bunch of players I felt like maybe they got stereotyped a little bit in the media where their, their portrayal is kind of shallow, uh, whether it's Stockton, whether it's Ewing. Uh, maybe even Carl Malone, I think maybe to a certain degree, the, the stereotypes for him were you know, maybe even more negative than the other guys. Um, is that how you see it? Are you seeing this idea of the narrative power guys reclaiming their own story, kind of warping how certain players maybe get remembered versus which guys get uh, forgotten or overlooked a little bit by history? Yeah. And the players are certainly uh, sensitive to it. I mean, uh, there's been a whole, there was not only 10 hours of Michael documentary, but there's been 40 hours of fallout, you know, <laughs> story, you know? which is, which is fine. I mean, I get it. I get, you know, if I was a regular member of the media or doing a podcast like you every week, I would have seized on some of that. Horace Grant, what? This is bull. 80% of it was bull. Uh, Scotty was PO'd at the, everybody is the inventor you know, of their own history, you know, to a certain extent. And one of the things I always admired about uh, some of the old school guys, certainly Larry Bird, was this way, was uh, he never really talked about rewriting what we had written about him. And, you know, I oh, maybe, maybe unconsciously, uh, because that was pretty positive, but Larry never bothered much with undoing it. Uh, but the real case I got of it was um, while I was taping the Dream Team interview for the, for the book, this is 2010, 2011, was Clyde Drexler, who I'd always gotten along with very well. I liked Clyde a lot. Um, and he started talking during his interview about Jordan. As I recall, I, I don't think I even brought it up. He said something, not obviously I was going to, because he was always, in the words of Jordan, a poor man's Michael Jordan. That was the ultimate third-person use, I thought, by the way. <laughs> that Michael well, you get, you get the sense in, a poor man's Michael Jordan. Anyway. Right. Clyde, Don't you get the sense in that interview, though, that it's like weighing on his chest? He's just waiting for you to come along to, to get this takeoff? Yes, exactly. And that's what I was going to say. And I think as well as we, we got along – 
I have to think that Clyde looked at me as one of those guys that did nothing but prop up and substantiate the Jordan myth-making. I know Isaiah Thomas felt like that with me. I mean, he was very honest a couple of years ago at a Hall of Fame dinner. You know, he said, uh, you know, I think you always, always badmouth the bad boys and downgraded us and never gave us credit or me enough credit. But then he shook out his hands and said, but, you know, congratulations on a good career anyway. But would I look at it? Like that, I mean, I, I wouldn't look at it like that. So this thing went on with Clyde when he all of a sudden started talking about Jordan and basically came to the conclusion that uh, the only thing he could do better than me was take more shots. And I, I went back and listened to the tape Oof. and I was just kind of astounded. And it struck me that that was Clyde trying his best to uh, rewrite, you know, what he thought his legacy was going to be, which he's absolutely correct about. (laughs) That, you know, you do have to be careful. I mean, the 1972 finals, that seems to be Clyde's entire moment, getting uh, 6-3'd by Jordan. And I tried to go back over those films to see how many times Clyde was actually on Michael. And he got picked off a couple times. Cliff Robinson was on Michael a couple times, who was a, you know, a really good defensive player, supposedly. So Clyde understood this, tried to unwrite it. and uh, But you're right. The players are very, very conscious themselves of kind of right undoing the legacy that has been written for them. Right. And so Clyde's, in this case, overcorrecting. I mean, even as somebody who was born and raised in Portland and kind of like right in that sweet spot for, uh, you know, the, the Rip City era, I think my dad tells a story the first time he took me to a Blazers game was one of the very rare occasions that Clyde, I think a lot of people considered one of the ultimate gentlemen, got ejected. And, and it wound up with me in the concourse in tears because, you know, the night was ruined. And, uh, you know, that that was you know, not exactly what he had anticipated when he put down the money for the tickets, right? So Clyde, in that case, is overcorrecting. Even a guy like me is not going to say, all right, come on, you're, you're not even really close to Jordan's class. But which of the guys from that dream team, uh, which you've got basically all Hall of Famers, is actually the most underrated by history, like impartially, you know, who, who would you say has gotten short shrift over this, you know, as time has passed? Well, that's a good question. And I, I don't think I've actually ever been asked that question. They all, they all got such a portion of publicity. Let's begin with that, that it would be very hard for them to be underrated. But let's start with Clyde. Because, as I was alluding to before, not to repeat what I just said, but he is sort of covered under this blanket of Michael Jordan and the 92 finals. It's like in the 90 finals, when they kind of got outthought and outfoxed by the uh, Pistons and got this reputation of being like a dumb team. You know, as from Portland, I'm sure you remember that. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it wasn't just for Clyde to get that blanket, right? I mean, if it was Jordan and his teammates were the Jordanaires early, I mean, that whole squad was just a bunch of blanket guys, right? I mean, you had uh, Stockton and Malode, who wound up being under the Jordan blanket. You had Charles, I think, who was under the Jordan blanket. You've got, you you detail the kind of the the tension, the the power struggle between Michael and Magic, where, uh, you know, Michael winds up eclipsing him from a star power standpoint, kind of ending his era as a champion as well. I mean, there's an awful lot of guys who are probably being overlooked here because of one guy, right? Yeah, but I I thought that the comparisons between Michael and Clyde were pretty direct. You know, they they were more direct because, uh, you know, Clyde played his position and the Blazer and the uh, presumably Blazers did not pick, you know, Michael Jordan because they already had Clyde Drexler. What I was saying about Drexler was that, and I didn't really realize this until later, I was looking at something and I looked at Clyde's numbers and everybody always talked about Clyde and it's kind of true. You know, he sort of always only went to his right and he was always looking half down. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) That was, but Clyde's numbers, on a team with a pretty good point guard and Terry Porter and a classic point guard. Now Clyde had the ball a lot, you know, his assist numbers and his rebound numbers are pretty damn good. So if you're asking me about underrated, I would probably begin with him. Number one, simply because it would be impossible to underrate Michael magic, Larry, um, 
The others, I think Malone and Stockton kind of got their due with what they were. Mully, Chris Mullen kind of did. Mully would have been a super, superstar in another era. I mean, he was a three-point shooter in an era when you weren't allowed to take three-point shots, you know? I mean... Yeah, 25 years too early, right? Exactly. I mean, Mullen, how good would that guy be now? You know, He would be yeah. invaluable. So I'm going to go Drexler number one, and a somewhat surprising pick that hurts me for number two is Leitner. When Leitner got, first of all, if those who remember him just by being the dream team stooge, um, you know, are missing the fact that he's what a a top ten college player of all time, top top fifteen <laughs> certainly. I would probably have him in the top ten. And when he with, got into the pros, with probably the best the best moment in college basketball history, too, arguably, right? There's uh, you know, there's not a lot of question about that. Two two NCAA championship teams, um, and you knew from the beginning. Well, he's going to have a little bit more of a trouble finding his position when he gets in the league, but he gets drafted by uh, Minnesota. You know, he only really played on bad teams. And Christian, if you look at his numbers, he was very nearly a double-double guy for a number of years. He eventually got tossed around on mediocre teams, and he got injured. I think his fifth season or something like that, he got a bad injury. And Christian would have probably been – a better pro. So I uncharacteristically, maybe hesitatingly put him number two and number three, strangely, I would put Barkley. And the reason I would put Barkley is he's more remembered for clownishness, uh, you know, being the guy out on the rhombus, being the guy now that'll say anything, the politically incorrect guy, the guy that's in the middle of everything, man, Charles was a great player. <laughs> Charles was, I mean, he was unstoppable. Had they given an MVP for Barcelona, you know, even Jordan and everybody said, I mean, Jordan was the best player, uh, but Barkley was the MVP. He, he shot like 70% from the field. He was unstoppable, and his unique skill set uh, really stamped him as a really unique player in the history of basketball. I'm trying to think of somebody like him. I'm sure somebody could come up with something, but boy, Charles was a great player. And in my opinion, at his best, better than Carl Malone. And Carl Malone, you're talking about one of the great consistent scorers that there has machine-like scorers and rebounders that has ever been in the league. So that'd be the three I'd go to, Ben, thinking about it quickly. Well, I am stunned that you put Leitner on that list. And I wanted to ask you a couple questions about him. First of all, and I know you said earlier it was kind of hard to penetrate him, when you look back on that selection process, and I think most of our listeners will know you put together that dream team cover for Sports Illustrated where you kind of hand-selected your top five guys and got their picture taken and started building some of the hype uh, around that team well before they you know, were really put together and, and uh, you know, kind of official. Um, had you been in charge of the actual dream team selection and you know they wind up giving that last spot to Leitner, they're kind of throwing a bone to the NCAA uh, you know, he's the only, you know, non basically Hall of Fame level pro on that team. Uh, how would you have handled that spot? I mean, obviously, there was a lot of politics involved with Isaiah kind of wanting a spot, you know, and kind of being shut out by by Jordan, as you've reported. There was, you know, people angling for Shaquille O'Neal that, you know, maybe he should have had that spot. There's the NCAA feeling like they deserve a spot. Um, there's other pros like Dominique Wilkins who who were shut out uh, because that, that spot went to Leitner. In hindsight, I think the the new generation Jack looks at that and is just like, "Come on, guys, you blew it!" Like whatever his college resume was, what were you thinking putting that guy on the team? And that may be unfair, uh, you know. As you've pointed out, you know he has quite the the resume himself. But what would you have done with that spot? Uh, did did the USAB get it right? Well, here's the quick answer. Uh, the quick answer is I would have done exactly what they did. Leitner deserved that spot. Now, why? There's a whole th history here. They went a long time, Ben, without figuring out. Once the pros were allowed, the NBA players, FIBA changed the rules. The Olympics changed the rules. NBA players were allowed to play in the Olympics. Previously, they weren't. We had had 50 years of our college and, in the beginning, AAU players. So there's a history there. Mike Krzyzewski was ready to coach the 92 Olympic team. There had been this progression. It was a natural order of things. 
So now the rules change. It's 1989, it's 1990. There was a year's worth of argument about how many NBA players versus how many college players are we going to. It was like eight to four, you know, for a while. Wow. So they started putting, CM Newton told me, who was a, col- a quote, college guy, they started putting the names on the board. No, Magic, Bird, Jordan, uh, Barkley, uh, Isaiah Thomas, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Chris Mullen, Reggie Mill. And they're going, how are we going to get four college players on here? You know, then it became nine to three. Then it became 10 to two. And then there was such an argument about it that when the team was originally announced in September of 91, you remember this, I'm sure, as a Portland fan, and, and uh, Clyde Drexler sure as hell remembers it. Clyde wasn't one of the original 10. They were going to hold this spot in abeyance uh, to, you know, and announce it before the playoffs. Now, whether or not they were still arguing about whether they could add two college players, I honestly don't remember. But there was a long time before we got down to there was only going to be one. And when they got down to only be one, and they were going to pay a debt to the college people, and they were going to pay homage to what had gone before, and they were going to pay tribute to the guys that had slaved on these USA basketball touring teams when they're staying in the YMCA in Serbia, that was Christian Leitner. I didn't have any trouble with it, even though, hey, how much fun would Shaquille have been on that team? But I think they got it right if they were going to have one college player. Yeah, it's just a fascinating situation. Time capsule moment and, you know, so many different probably, uh, you know, bases to try to cover with that decision. So once Leitner is on that team, and I promise this isn't going to be just an entirely a Christian Leitner podcast, but I'm <laughs> curious, um, just because the, when you look at the pictures of that team, he even just jumps off the picture, sticks out like a sore thumb a little bit, right? Uh, what was his day-to-day life like? Was he embraced by his teammates? Was he part of the group? Did they treat him a little bit differently? Um, you know, you describe in the podcast, you know, you're following Charles around. He's sort of like the Pied Piper. Uh, Jordan's having these great golf matches with Chuck Daly. I mean, everybody, there's there's cliques forming. And of course, everyone knows the legendary uh, late night uh, card games uh, with Barkley and, and Magic and Jordan and everything else. Is Leitner an outcast? Is he just getting along? Is he happy to be there? I mean, how does that going for him? What's his life like? You know, I couldn't see everything I wanted to see. And the times that I could get these guys um, in the Olympics is the Olympics is tough. I remember when I started the dream team book, I, I told the editor that, look, this can't be a book about Barcelona because there's a lot of Barcelona that is, even though the title is the dream team, um, and how they changed the world, blah, 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 with the world's longest subtitle. Um, a lot of it can't be Barcelona because you're shut out of a lot of things. And whenever I had to get a guy, uh, you know, during the Olympics, I had to get Magic. I had to get Michael. I had to get Carl Malone for something. I had to get Chuck Daly. I was easy to get Charles. I followed him around for one story. So it, the first answer to your question is, I couldn't give a complete answer on who Leitner hung with. When I went to interview Leitner for the book, he was very, uh, it was a tough interview. It spoke to, I knew his place on the team was very, very difficult. He's not a dope. He may be an egotist, but he knew he didn't belong on that team. He totally understood that. He totally understood he was going to, I think back in San Diego when they got together, he was doing the usual rookie crap. You know, he was, you know, going for potato chips to 7-Eleven and stuff. He was doing all of that. <laughs> As time went on, that changed. I mean, he, Leitner wasn't hauling his own bags over in Barcelona. So I wish I could have gotten more out of him, but I tried to get him to tell me who was nice to him. And by what he said to me, told me a lot. And the number one person that he was close with over there was Barkley that had kind of gathered him in. And that Mm. speaks to Barkley's ability to kind of, I'm sure half the time he was giving him SHIT about it. Hey, Christian, you know who we play tonight, Uh, Georgia tech, you know, or something. But so Barkley kind of gathered him in enough. Leitner would say at practice that bird would shoot with him. Mullen would shoot with him. 
So I think on at those times he got kind of just enough out of it, but he knows eternally that he was the guy that probably shouldn't be there, and I think that stuck with him a little bit. That's fascinating. I mean, Barkley, to me, he's always struck me as a guy who's not afraid to go after the biggest target, but he also seems like he generally has a soft spot for the little guy, whether it's the fan or, you know, the, the, the person who's getting picked on or, or whatever else, at least within a basketball context. Well, no, I mean, uh, Bar- Barkley totally understands that to the point when I was talking to Leighton, we started talking about the best players. And as I said, Barkley was the MVP, but Jordan was the unquestioned best player. There was this pecking order over there, interestingly enough. Jordan, Barkley, Pippen were the magic triumvirate of that team for various reasons. But anyway, Leitner would not give up the fact that Charles, uh, Leitner would not, excuse me, would not give up the opinion that it was very close between Jordan and Barkley as the (laughs) best player in the game. And I said, Christian, you're only saying that because Barkley was nice to you. <laughs> you know? Right. But, you know, no, I didn't. And he finally maybe admitted a little bit uh, that way. But uh, you're right. Charles had that and continues to have kind of that gift, you know, that gift of including in- inclusiveness, you know, which for superstar athletes is sometimes very hard. For Jordan, well, it's obviously hard. Well, it's always nice when journalists can turn it back around on players and say, you know, you might be the one guilty of a little bit of bias here. You might be getting a little bit too close. Uh, It's always nice when you can flip the table. Hey, you mentioned the challenge um, of the book not being too Barcelona-centric because of, say, the access issues or just, you know, and also the fact that the games were all routes. I mean, going back and looking at some of the scores, you see there was one game that's like a 46-1 to run or something like that. I mean, this is... Well, that was the Angola game when Charles, in the middle of the 46-1 to run, decides to elbow an Ann Golden player in, yeah. in the middle of the 46 to one run. But Right. So, I mean, you're not exactly writing a 1500 word gamer off that story, right? I mean, 46 to one, that's, that's barely even basketball as we know it. So when you're heading over and you're talking with your editors before uh, this ramp up to the Barcelona run, what is that brainstorming session like? What are you guys trying to focus on in terms of like angles for your stories? You know, of course, people are going to remember, you know, the whole flap Reebok and Nike, you know, putting the the flag over Jordan's, you know, track jacket during the uh, medal ceremony and everything else. Were you looking for stories that sort of kind of transcended basketball? Were you looking for the off-court color from Barkley? I mean, just what was your process like re- knowing going in that there was going to be no drama to really write about on the court other than maybe the, the punking of Tony Kukoc, right? Right, right. And, and I didn't, we didn't understand that before we went. I didn't, I didn't know that Jordan and uh, Pippen were going to decide to make Tony Kukoc there. there. You started hearing whispering about it, but that was only right before the Croatia game. Uh, anyway, in answer to your question, it's, it's an interesting one because it really speaks to the times. I can admit this now. You cannot believe, Ben, how easy that job was in Barcelona. No internet, right? <laughs> no SI.com. There's no tweeting. There's no over there. Yeah, there was talk radio in which I could have made appearances, but not really over there. I wrote basically three stories about the greatest team ever put together. That's how many stories I wrote. And I knew that one of them going in, I do remember having this conversation, was going to be about magic. Because uh, I don't, I think people would forget historically how close magic's announcement that he had HIV. And you, you mentioned you were, I guess you were a kid then, 14. Yeah, no, I, and the year that Magic announced, I think I was probably in maybe second or third grade. And I remember okay. being, you know, sitting so, at my friend's house and just stunned. You know, it, it stopped the world for us even at that point. Well, and, and everybody, even, you know, I mean, medical people, some medical people and people might, we thought he was going to die. So it's November of 91 that we think he's going to die. In February, by February of 92, that's like three months later. <laughs> He's in the All-Star game. By four months after that, he's practicing for the Dream Team. I mean, it really is one of the incredible cultural things that ever happened, not just in sports. And so I knew the only thing I knew going over was that uh, Magic 
had to be one of the stories. And when I went to see him, all I remember about the story was it ended up as a Q&A. Because partly because what you said, there's there literally nothing to write about basketball game. I don't know whether I wrote – the only basketball I ever talked about at Barcelona was what I just told you about the Jordan story on March Lonis. And the only reason I remember Jordan and Pippen was everybody talked about it in retrospect. I don't – you know, I, I wasn't writing a game story off of that game, you know. So I had three stories to write about this team, a kind of intro the first week, the Q&A with Magic, and then it's the word started getting around that Charles was going out every night. And this became, you know, this, well, you got to do that. <laughs> you got to do that story. We got to get photos. So, And then I wrote a follow-up when we came back because Larry Bird retired. So if you, you talk about the way journalism used to be different, uh, it is very difficult to overestimate what kind of difference it was. And when I set out to do the Dream Team book, fortunately, you know, the, the record of these guys between games and a lot of their opinions and a lot of that kind of stuff that would have been covered by podcasts like yours and a million uh, internet stories, you know, ESPN.com, WashingtonPost.com, SI.com. There was none of that. None of that. So there was a great unkind of written record about these guys. And that, you know, that really sort of helped me a lot. No, it's fascinating. I mean, contrast it with how USA Basketball is covered today when, you know, they've got 100 plus reporters getting led into the training camp um, in Las Vegas. And, you know, guys are just sworn by cameras in their face. And as soon as they say something, it get, you know, it's already on Twitter and Instagram. Or if they play one on one on one, you know, like King of the Hill style with Kevin Durant and James Harden, those video clips are circulating within 15 minutes. Um, you know, the saturation has absolutely hit USA basketball in a way that just sounds like it was completely different back then. Well, you know, I it sounds when, you know, this this most recent USA basketball team, um, I mean, I wasn't in the middle of covering it at all. And there was probably more stories written about Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> you know, I'm not laughing at Donovan Mitchell, but he's not Michael Jordan. There were right. more stories written about Donovan Mitchell over three days than there were that were that was written, you know, collectively about the first three days of Dream Team practice, simply because there were not there was a lot written about it, and they were and there was an international press contingent. It was sort of the beginning of you know real international coverage of the game, but there were not these Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday outlets where stuff would be chattered about and deconstructed uh, endlessly. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I guilty as charged. I definitely wrote a Donovan Mitchell story last summer before they, they left uh, to go abroad. And, you know, we were scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to, you know, who's the oldest player? Who's the youngest player invited? What, you know, which guy's going to break out as an all-star? I mean, trying to find every angle that we could uh, at the Washington Post because the interest is there, you know, and, and bottom line, that's that's probably, uh, you know, that, that nonstop interest is is probably, a, you know, a, a different uh, environment from a, an audience standpoint than what existed, uh, you know, or the expectations, I guess, that existed back in 92. You sure. know, that whole trip to Barcelona, uh, you know, you had me jealous at a lot of different points. You're describing following Barkley around. You, you just casually drop in this idea that you drive from Monaco to Barcelona, which that sounds like the single greatest assignment in the history of sports journalism. Jack, I'm surprised you made it <laughs> uh, to, to Barcelona if that's the drive. Um, but uh, the whole thing started in Portland, right? Of, of all places, can you just explain to the you know our listeners like why what what was going on in the tournament in Americas? How did Portland, of all places, kind of become the launching pad for the Dream Team? Uh, and it seemed like in the episode that you did about uh, the tournament in Americas, you have a real soft spot for the the city. So what I'm doing right now is just uh, shamelessly asking for a little bit of love for my uh, my hometown. Chamber, uh, there you go, Chamber of Commerce. Uh, it's episode five, by the way, which will be a couple Mondays from now. But the, the United States had finished, you know, with a bronze medal in 88. And I don't remember the exact qualifying rules, but the U.S. had to qualify for the Olympics. And the, quote, qualifier was scheduled in March, you know, when the NBA's in the middle of the season. So around about 1990, 90, I guess 91, I think it was getting pretty close to when they had to do it. The NBA goes, look, we can't qualify in March. We're going to change this whole thing. We're going to buy the qualifying. All they had to do was buy 
they had to convince FIBA to move it. And by then, FIBA would have done, you know, anything. <laughs> they would have sewn the uniforms of the Dream Team to get them over there. Um, <laughs> so they buy the TV rights from, I think a guy in Brazil had it for, for a pittance for them, three, four million bucks. Honest to God, Ben, I can't quite remember. I think they thought Portland, here's the way I remember it, that they really wanted to give a thank you uh, to a place that had been, you know, really one of the rock solid franchises of the NBA for years and years, but would not present the zoo problems of Los Angeles, uh, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, Boston, you know, and as it turned well, yeah, out, ba- back at that time, Portland's gone a long run of playoff appearances, right? Like basically most of the eighties into the nineties, it's just, you know, they, playoffs, playoffs, like, playoffs every year. I think they had like 16 or 17 years or something. They were in the playoffs and they had won it in 77, but it just turned out so perfect because the finals were there that year. And then they moved the draft there. I don't remember Obviously, I I don't remember whether they moved. They must have moved the draft there when they were going to have the Tournament of the Americas. But anyway, so you had the three, you know, greatest events of the summer, the finals, you know, a couple games in Portland, the the draft right afterward, then went into the Tournament of Americas. And most of us who who covered the Dream Team uh, had this – Portland remains the best memory of it. I remember a line I wrote in the book was it was the last time you felt you could put your arms around the team, you know, that it wasn't so restrictive and so insane. And like I brought my family, uh, once again, it sounds like the Portland Chamber of Commerce, but my whole family came out there, you know, to watch the qualifying tournament. And to the point that for years afterward, my wife and I said, Let's move to Portland for a year. Love it. <laughs> and for us, that's 3,000 miles. I live in Pennsylvania. And we really thought seriously about it. My kids were the perfect age. They, they were outdoor kids. You know, they were riding bikes and swimming in the wherever the falls were out of town, you know, the, the river and stuff. And it was just this perfect kind of honeymoon. And so far as basketball went, no, the basketball was just as lopsided. But the one, if you ask me one moment, that I remember about the this whole thing, a basketball moment. It was right before they uh, ran out for the first time. You know, it's curious that that, as unsentimental as I might be and as many things as I've seen, uh, that remains incredibly uh, special. To see, you know, after all this, who was going to carry the flag, what was the starting lineup going to be? That was that was uh, a really great moment. And when they ran out, the Cuba team stopped practicing. <laughs> they stopped. They, they just they, go slack, John. They stopped. Yeah, exactly. They stopped practicing and they gathered to watch uh, the Dream Team. So you know, it sort of set the stage for kind of uh, what it became, but. Uh, Portland was great. I mean, I'm, I'm glad we had Portland before we got to the other international crazy world, helicopters flying overhead, Uzis parked in the buildings outside of their hotel. I'm glad we had Portland before there was Barcelona. That's amazing. I mean, that's probably the peak of Portland as a city, if you think about it, in terms of influence, especially from the basketball side. We could argue maybe it's the peak of uh, mankind, 1992 Portland, uh, hosting <laughs> all, hosting the entire Dream Team, their moment in the sun. Um, it was a big deal. I mean, I was a little kid. I didn't get, you know, we weren't lucky enough to go to those games, but just, you know, I just remember the, the Oregonian press coverage of it, you know, kind of wall to wall. I mean, just so excited. It almost felt too good to be true at that time. Uh, you're bringing back great memories. Hey, in 2012, I remember being at one of those USA basketball training camps, and I think I think it was Kobe who came out pretty strong and said, "Look, we could take the dream team." I mean, he felt pretty confident about it. And of course, it was you know typical Kobe being Kobe, right? And I think we saw flashes of that personality in the Last Dance when he was still a teenager, right? And all the uh, the older guys are kind of laughing and chuckling about how brash and, and confident he is. 
Has there ever been a team that USA Basketball has put together, whether it was that group, which was loaded with LeBron and a whole bunch of other, you know, very, very high level Hall of Fame players that you felt if all the players, you know, are kind of at the ages that they were, you know, during those Olympics that could actually push the dream team? Or do you feel like everybody else is just kind of walking in their shadow? Well, uh, first of all, the, the Kobe thing, I remember seeing Kobe over there in 2012, and I remember talking to him, and I'm going, uh, you know, Kobe was obviously, you know, an incredible egotist and said some things he shouldn't say, say. But the idea of criticizing Kobe for saying my team can beat that team, that's what Kobe does. I mean, would we have expected him to go, you know, I don't think yeah. we can beat him. So I just the opposite would have been disappointing, right? It's like, wait a minute. Yeah, what? What? You know, of course he's going to say that. You know, I think that the let me see if I can phrase this correctly: the 2012 team, um, but more the 2018. What the eight and 12 teams accomplished is far didn't have a greater impact. They weren't a better team, but what they did in the Olympics, what they achieved was far greater on a basketball basis than what the uh, Dream Team did. I mean, by then, you're talking about going out and beating not a roster full, but a roster heavy of NBA players who are playing with this national pride, who have played together as kids. It's almost like the AAU circuit back here. You know, they had all played for their club teams and eventually got to junior national teams. You're talking about beating those guys. That is a great achievement. To me, your answer to your question is no, I don't think anybody would have beaten the dream team simply because they were they were sort of this anomaly. They were at this perfect time that Jordan, Pippen, Barkley, Malone, Stockton, Ewing, Robinson, Mullen were all at like this perfect part of their careers that they had both experience, but they were still young enough. Obviously, Magic and Larry were ceremonial. You know, Magic and Larry were ceremonial players at that point. You're talking about a group of players who, sure, athletes always get better. You know, we all know that, you know, who's looked like LeBron back then beside Carl Malone. I don't care what you say, this group was an anomaly. We're still talking about them. Has there been a better athlete than Jordan, Pippen, David Robinson, Barkley in his own way, and Carl Malone. Couldn't they stand up to any age? You know, so, and, and number three, the big difference is inside. I mean, these guys threw Ewing, Robinson, Barkley, and Malone at you. And so, although some members of those later teams, you know, the hard thing is somebody said, could somebody from those teams have played on the dream team? Of course. But then you got to kick some people from the dream team off, you know, Kobe, LeBron, uh, Curry, Durant. Could those guys have played for the dream team? Yeah, but we still got to kick somebody off, right? (laughs) So we'll kick off Leitner. That's still three spots we got to go for. So start thinking about it. Maybe you kick out one of the centers. Maybe you kick out David or Patrick. But, uh, boy – it, it would be tough. It would be tough. Yeah, there's no question. You know, the oldest rule of sports, right? No cheering in the press box. And it's pretty easy to cover the NBA and adhere to that, I think, especially if you do it for two or three years. But I've always been curious on the international level, um, you know, for example, like even just covering the Raptors title run and, and some of the Canadian journalists, how they were uh, viewing that Raptors team as a matter of national pride almost. But then when you get to the Olympics, and, you know, you've got some of these countries that, you know, basketball is just life and death for them, right? They're they're so proud to be on that stage. I imagine it has a warping effect, perhaps, on the, the media approach uh, to those teams. I'm curious, how do you balance this idea of whether it's patriotism or national pride or just the bond that you would have with your fellow Americans on an international stage versus, you know, your own journalistic uh, principles i mean did you see some people crossing the line in memorable ways i mean you, i think you mentioned some of the players asking for autographs and uh you know and sneakers and things like that from the dream team guys but what about on the media side what was the environment like in 92 and and do you still find yourself with any sort of a kinship with this program uh, all these years later 
Yeah, well, the answer to that is, yeah, I mean, there, there's immense differences. First of all, back in 92, yeah, I can't remember whether I wrote this or not, but um, from the media standpoint, guys like me and David Dupree and Bob Ryan and Mike Wilbon and guys that were covering, I'm forgetting some great people, forgive me, everybody, this kind of group of us that were covering this the whole way, it was almost like with the media you sort of attained some kind of level of prestige. That didn't seem like it. You, uh, you attained a level of prestige by being associated with them. And I remember a Chinese journalist came up to me at the 92 Olympics and asked if he could follow me around for a day because he had <laughs> the idea that I'd be sipping daiquiris with Jordan and Pippen. And I said, well, you can follow me around if you want to. You know, I'm going to get up. I'm going to have some breakfast. I'm supposed to go to the Picasso Museum. You know, then I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> I'll have a couple beers at the hotel bars with, you know, with one of the other journalists. And so if you think that's interesting, <laughs> you know. So I always, from the international standpoint, I always looked upon it as, and it was true, I was the ruling class. You know, and, and it remains that way today. And I think part of the reason the behavior of the foreign journalists and the root, root, root for the home team type of mentality comes from, yeah, just the way they're brought up. It's different standards. But it's also that we're always battling America. And this is in basketball. I can't tell you what it is in soccer. Grant Wall might have, or whoever the post expert is on soccer, he could have, that could be totally different where the Americans are coming in as the perennial, you know, what, 12th seed or something. But that's how it's been in basketball. But the further answer to your question was, and I just thought of this, in 2010, when I was researching the Dream Team book, I went to Istanbul, and it was the World Championships, and it was the Kevin Durant World Championships. And I call it that because that guy went out and just made like seven cold-blooded three-pointers to, to silence a pro-Turkey crowd that sounded like, you know, that Indianapolis or Utah crowd that they talked about in Last Dance 9 and 10, you know, that oh, yeah. vicious, that vicious, yelling, loud, bellicose crowd. And I remember sitting in the stands, and the only reason I had gone was to interview Boris Stankovic, who had been the head of FIBA. My wife was with me. And she was at the game, and I remember thinking, okay, Kevin, let's bury him, baby. <laughs> you know? And that that's the one time that I felt it, and it had to do with the fact that the Americans could have lost that game. It was such a hostile atmosphere. Kevin was still kind of a kid, right? I mean, he came in in 07, I believe. And uh, that's one of the times I remember rooting. But something in, and you always root for your story. I mean, probably, you know, that's probably, you know, going to be the best, uh, the best story. I still could never bring it to my, uh, there's something still in my nature, and I'm sure in yours, that would not allow me to outwardly, uh, you know, cheer. I mean, I wrote a book. Yeah. On you don't have any face paint on in that scene, is what you're saying. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you got maybe a silent fist bump when he hits the, the fifth three pointer, right? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a book on the Suns in 05 and 06, and the further the Suns went for me, the better. And I used to sit there at the press table, and a shot would go up in a key part of the game, and my teeth and my toes would kind of be clenched <laughs> because I'd want it to go in because it helps me. You know? I mean, I like Steve Nash and Raja Bell and, and Sean Marion and all those guys, but I wasn't cheering it for them. You know, I was cheering it for me, but I could never, it would be very difficult to bring myself to do an outward expression the way you see on the international stage. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. I, You know, one time, just to add to that, um, you know, this, this past FIBA World Cup run, this idea of like America being this just prominent basketball power that's supposed to go on forever, right? And the American exceptionalism within this basketball sphere it's hard to to break your way out of, right? I mean, because there's such a long track record, especially under Coach K, of just dominant success. And they go over there, uh, you know, last fall, 
And I think it's like, what, seventh place? And they're they're dropping games kind of left and right. And they look disorganized. And the whole story of, you know, Greg Popovich takes over. This is going to kind of be his crowning achievement. And, you know, he gets two gold medals maybe uh, in the World Cup and the Olympics. And he goes out on top having accomplished everything that uh, you ever could accomplish. Just gets completely detonated. And in that moment, it's like, I'm not necessarily celebrating USA Basketball's victories in any way. But you do feel almost like a little bit of wounded pride or not shame, you know, it doesn't go that far, but you do kind of feel those losses kind of personally. And I remember coming away from that World Cup viewing experience, just thinking like, look, we got to be better than this, right? I mean, just kind of disgusted almost in a way. And I think Popovich probably had some public uh, comments on a similar vein. I don't know if you shared that, but did you have any other takeaways Uh, from, you know, maybe that black eye of an American experience here all these years later, because as you've written in the book and and present also in the podcast series, I mean, that 92 team fast-tracked all these big-time players, whether it's Dirk Nowitzki or the the generation that followed him, that wound up being the competitors that now are, you know, in some cases giving USA Basketball fits. Well, the way I looked at it, Ben, was that the the Krzyzewski teams, you're right. I mean, they had uninterrupted success, but they were they were Kobe, uh, LeBron, Durant, Wade, Carmelo teams, and they didn't exactly dominate. You know, so they. I mean, that's what I said. Their grittiness in winning. I don't have the scores in front of me, but their grittiness in winning the gold was, you know, apparent was manifest, uh, and. That was with the best players of the era. So I, you know, you're probably looking at it differently because you're writing, you know, contemporary, you cover these guys on a regular basis. But to me, when that team, you know, the 2019 team, um, they're going into a game against, they got beat by, I think, Serbia and France, right? Correct. Yeah. They're going into a game where Bojanovic and Jokic, are on the other team, and we got one guy, Harrison Barnes, who has, I believe this is true, who had like one guy who had like Olympic experience, right? I, Correct. I yeah, no, I mean, it was it was a C team. There's no question I, about I it. Like but... <laughs> I like Jokic. I'm taking Jokic, so I can't, I still think, I know there's a list of people that withdrew uh, that's as long as, you know, I guess LeBron was never going to play, but, you know, uh, I'll name it. I mean, Harden, Westbrook, uh, you can name it easier than I did. I still, you know, I'm sorry. I still think we don't wipe the floor, but I still think we win with our best players. And I do think that eventually that trend will continue, uh, will we'll stop, but I I just still don't see it in the near future. If we could theoretically, and it may become theoretical, get our best players, uh, I still think we will win in international competition. No, I hear you. I mean, the the talent advantage is still there. And on paper, I still think that the C team, you know, they they didn't have that superstar level player, but they still had a lot of really quality NBA players. And that's why I wound up kind of disappointed from that group. But of course, if you're bringing over the A team, everything is looking different. I guess I want to wrap up with this last question. I mean, Jerry Colangelo, I think, has done a pretty strong job of recruiting over the entire, you know, tenure that he's had at kind of the head of USA Basketball. Um, you know, they did have this recent coaching change. And I think Popovich, um, you know, he's just a different style coach uh, than Coach K. And uh, maybe he was trying to impose, you know, his beliefs a little bit more uh, intently than, than a Coach K did. Uh, or maybe not. Maybe you feel differently there. But I'm wondering, like, what is the key here going forward for the recruitment side? I mean, they got they got really lucky or they set things up very well having LeBron be so invested in that program at a young age and being willing to kind of, you know, rec- you know, act as a player recruiter almost to his friends. But as they're trying to reload here in, you know, whenever the next Olympics is 2021 or, you know, Tokyo and beyond, is there a, a secret sauce here? What, what's the what's the move that USA Basketball needs to do to ensure that the dominance that you expect continues? It's, it's huge what you just said, LeBron. Not, not LeBron necessarily. You got to get the player agent. That that's you got to get that guy. Who is that guy in twenty one, twenty two? You tell me. Who's that guy? 
Well, the the guy who I would be laying the seeds with early might be Zion, you know? I mean, even if he doesn't wind up being that the number one player in the league at some point, I feel like he's got the magnetism and the star power and just the personality to help sell the game. And I also just think he's kind of infectious, right? Like, wouldn't you want to go spend four weeks abroad with Zion? I would. That sounds like fun. It might not be as fun as Barkley uh, in Barcelona, but it's going to be fun, right? No, I I think whether that's number, I think there's two things that compete to be number one or 1A. That That is huge. I mean, even the dream team was selected basically by this, you know, have, I, I can't tell the exact moment, hey, Magic's in? This is legit. <laughs> you know, this is legit. You know, because... Well, that's what Michael said in the last dance. He's like, who's all playing, right? That's his version of, uh, on TV, but that's the whole thing. It's yeah, like, Michael's you know, is not going to go join it if, it's, if it, there's not the best guy. NBA players are very... I guess all pro athletes are, but I know the NBA, this is true. They're very status conscious. Don't belong to a club if it's a cool club. You know? But if it ain't a cool club, they're not beginning. So I, I like your choice. I don't, you've dealt with Zion very much. I have not. I like that idea, but you got to get that guy. Number two, you got to buy into a storyline. You got to buy into a narrative. And Krzyzewski's a great coach, a great organizer. But in 2008, those guys bought in. And the reason they bought in was 2004, I covered those Olympics in Athens. The defensive backcourt was Iverson and Marbury. Oof. I mean, you and I get nine and seven in that game. <laughs> you know, they went out the first game and lost to Puerto Rico by 19. You know? So Oof. To, to me, it was a, a matter of selling a story that, look, uh, and it's maybe better done with young players, a, a guy like Zion. Things are changing here. It's a changing world. We got to stay on top here. We need you to do this. And it was easy to do in 2008. That's why what they did in 2012, I think, was just as impressive. Got even tougher. There were more NBA caliber players against them. Um, but like you said, you had LeBron uh, invested. You had uh, Durant invested. So those two things, uh, to me, are much more important than the coach. When they get there, uh, they'll be able to play a system. But you got to have, you got to have the horses. You got to have All the right. horses, and you, maybe this is you know obvious stuff, but you got to you got to tell a tale of why we need to do this. I mean, even in '92, part of that motivation for the Dream Team, part of it was we lost in '88. I mean, I don't think, to tell you the truth, those guys paid a lot of attention to it. You know, uh, they probably watched Olympic basketball. But by the time the dream team was forming, part of the old, you know, let's go USA unity was based upon the fact they had lost in 88. And so now you got to tell this tale of we're going to keep losing. If we don't get, if we don't get eight of the 12 best players we're going to lose an international competition and it doesn't matter who's coaching the team. That's my opinion. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because with this coronavirus now, that could scare some players from wanting to travel. But if you're USA basketball, you might have to flip that and that's your pitch and say, look, you know, basketball took a huge financial hit with this delay. Um, You know, the whole world is kind of craving sports. Uh, You know, we need to kind of restore our place and kind of, you know, bring a sense of normalcy. If we go over there, it will have major symbolic value about, you know, the fact that we can return to our daily lives and everyone should feel comfortable traveling internationally. I mean, I can see some of those storylines you know hopefully once we get through this pandemic and you know are out on the other side potentially developing and potentially being something that uh, usa basketball could use to try to convince the players to sort of uh you know get the entire sport uh and then get the game back on track jack i've taken up way too much of your time i do want to make sure that all of our listeners know you've got multiple books out there that are all must reads whether it's uh, golden days your your book about jerry west and and the steph curry warriors uh, kind of tying those two stories together the dream team book that we've discussed you also mentioned the seven seconds or less and of course the new podcast is dream team tapes Jax, th- thanks so much you're an incredible storyteller i uh, i learned quite a bit on this hour and in the podcast as well and i wish the best for you and your family uh, and everyone else hey thanks a lot for having me ben had a lot of fun 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work.